Right. Good morning, church. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, I hope you have a device or something where you can look it up. Uh, but we also have some in the lobby that we'd love to give you one. If you just want to make your way to next steps, grab one off the shelf and uh, keep it. We'd love to give one to you if you don't have one. Um, but we love um, to get our noses in this word. Uh, we believe it has the power to save us, sanctify us, uh, conform us to the image of Christ, make us more like Jesus. Um, and uh, boy, do we love to treasure his word and see Jesus in it. So if you're a guest with us, um, as Reggie said, uh, all we want from you this morning uh, is for you to just enjoy your time being with our church family. And uh, I'd love to get your info. Uh, we're not going to add you to a list or anything like that, but I'd love to reach out to you personally and uh, just hear your story, hear what the Lord is doing in your life and how our church uh, might be able to serve you um, in that way. So if you missed um, filling this out and putting it in the buckets, there's boxes on your way out. We'd love to just get one of these from you. Um, and let me say a couple things. One, if you joined us for dinner last week, uh, thank you. Uh, we had a blast. It was an awesome time. And uh, in the middle of the chaos and just looking out at all of our church family, just setting up trees and decorations and everything else, um, it was really awesome just to think, man, this is what um, our prayer is for our church um, and how we want it to function corporately as a whole is that um, just different people using their gifts to serve one another, to serve alongside one another. And it was just awesome to look around and see those that were very detail-oriented be detail-oriented and those like me who are not to move tables and chairs and uh, talk to people, uh, which I like to think that that's my gift and things like that. So it was just awesome just to see different people, children, you know, adults, older folks, whoever it was, Everybody jumped in and just started using their gifts to serve. And I was like, man, that's what we want our church to do Monday through Saturday with one another, um, is use their gifts to serve one another and bless one another and care for one another. Um, so it was just a, a small glimpse of, uh, man, this is what we want. And this is what we're moving towards and what we're longing for uh, by God's grace. So thank you for setting up all this stuff. Thank you for um, being an awesome church family. And it was fun to have dinner with you last week. Uh, a couple things. Uh, the year's wrapping up. Um, if you're planning on joining us for equip classes starting in January. You can sign up for those online. We have those for men, women, students, uh, kids, and uh, we have a foundations class. I think the first service is the service. I always forget to mention that too. Um, if you feel like you want to revisit the foundational elements of the Christian faith, uh, the essential beliefs of the Christian faith, whether you're a new believer or whether you're a longtime believer and just want to revisit some of those, um, that class is going to be available too. So we'd love for you to do that. Um, make sure you're signing up for those. You can sign up your students. You can sign up yourself online um, at our website at the Carville page. And then thank you all for jumping in um, as we communicated kids' needs last week. Uh, we still have a couple needs, and uh, it was awesome to see people jump in and help and for our congregation to feel that burden of we all want to participate in the discipling of our children. And uh, the more we get, uh, the, the less frequent you have to do it. And uh, it's awesome to see uh, the rotation forming and people jumping in and say, hey, I can do once a month, I can do once every six weeks, I can do you know, whatever your availability is. Um, but those spots are filling up, and we wanted to say thank you. Um, but we also have a couple more if you're interested in doing that. Um, and then lastly, as we've talked about church membership, 
um, a lot. We did a whole series on what it means to be a healthy church. What does it look like to be a member of a healthy church? What is membership? Um, it's not a country club membership and all those kind of things. Uh, some of you may have had the thought, like, I wonder if I'm a member at this church. You know, I've attended for a long time. Um, I look like one, I act like one, I quack like one, but I just don't know if I've like ever officially signed the dotted line. Um, our first membership class is going to be January the 8th. And we'd love for you to come. If you're unsure, if you're like, if I've ever committed to being a part of this family and committed to these people to love them and serve them and care for them and practice all of the one another's in scripture, uh, January 8th is our first class and we would love to take care of that for you. Um, So let us know, ask Marley or myself, like, hey, we're not sure where we land. Um, We'd love to to get you signed up for that first class. It's just a dinner up here. And as we think about um, our members of our body using their gifts, Um, If you have the gift of hospitality, uh, one of the things we would love to do is start hosting that dinner at different members of our body's house. Um, It's one thing to have dinner in a lobby that's very big and open, you know, for the 10 to 12 people that show up, Um, but we'd love to have that in someone's home. Um, So if you're like, hey, I'm very hospitable, I love using my gifts to make people feel welcome in our home and all those things, uh, reach out to us because we'd love to, to have those in the home. We can always use the lobby, it works fine. Um, but there's something special about doing that in someone's home. So let us know about that. Um, I think that's everything I needed to say. Let's read Isaiah chapter 9. We walked through a lot of the context last week, but we're going to look at it in more detail this week, and uh, we're going to continue on our series. We're walking through um, the different names that are ascribed to this child and this son, uh, this child that would be born, the son that would be given, uh, that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And uh, last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And uh, this week, we are going to look at the fact that he is a mighty God. So if you'll stand, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And then we'll pray and uh, jump in together. Uh, This is Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise be to God. Let's pray together and uh, dive into this text. Lord, we love you. Father, we invite you here. Um, God... um, Your spirit wrote this book. Your spirit is inside of us. So God, uh, we ask the winds to blow. We ask the spirit to move, uh, to illumine the truth to us. Father, for us to see your son in this text, 
um, as he is all over it. Um, God, help us to see um, the gospel. Help us to see what you've done in our place. Um, God, I pray against any um, misinterpretation of this passage that would lead us to believe that we just need a couple pointers, that we just need to be a little better this week. Um, God, help us to see our need in this passage and help us to see what you've done uh, to the glory of your name and sending us your son. Um, Father, it's he that we celebrate this Christmas. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. He is the only one worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. Um, So God, I pray that he would be glorified in these next couple minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in the I can't remember if it was the fifth or sixth grade. Um, It was Christmas season. I was really excited. And like most of your fifth or sixth graders, I was, you know, looking forward to some basketball gear. I was looking forward to some video games, you know, maybe get lucky and get a whole new video game console and all the things. And I will never forget um, the morning that Christmas changed for me forever. Um, It was, you know, coming out of that season where you get toys and you get all those kind of things. And um, I remember Christmas morning, opening this box, you know, it's looking like it could be a a couple of video games or some things like that. And I open it up and it is this package, this variety package of Old Spice deodorant and body wash and, you know, all the things, shampoo. I had hair at the time, like all of those things. It was just this, this gift. And I was so perplexed and so confused And I remember my dad loving me enough to look at me and said, like, son, it's time. Like, you stink. Like, you're starting to stink. This is the beginning of your hygiene journey. Like, we got you started. And I just remember, like, wrestling with those thoughts of, like, Christmas will never be the same. Like, are are the socks and the underwear coming next and all of those kind of things. And uh, what's so funny about that is oftentimes gifts can reveal something about the recipient and even the giver. Um, They can communicate messages, can't they? They sure can. Anybody ever felt that way before? Uh, some of you might have, you know, been given a parenting book and you're like, I don't know how to feel about this. And like, there's another couple, you know, and their kids are all in a row and they're all looking nice. And they're like, yeah, we figured you could use that. And you're like, oh, okay. Right. And you get this gift and, and, and it's, you're almost like, I, is this revealing something about me? Um, it would be like somebody giving me the book, you know, auto repair for dummies. And I'm like, I, okay, message received. Like the fact that you gave me this communicates, you know, something that you believe about me, something that I need. Um, It would be like someone giving me a gym membership or someone giving me, you know, one of those devotionals that also has a diet plan and then like a place for your goals for the next five years and a place for a to-do list. It's essentially a book that says like, hey, you need to get your life together. One of those things. And it's like, oh, you know, thank you for the gift. And uh, you, you've revealed something in me. You've revealed anger and bitterness and, you know, pride and this need to get my life together. Or if somebody ever give you, gave you makeup and you're like, yeah, that's not really the brand I use. And they're like, we know. And they just hand it to you anyways kind of thing. And you're just like, oh, okay, right? Message received. It would be like someone giving me hair clippers in high school. I just, you know, probably needed that message. Um, I'll never forget. My freshman year of college, um, I had staying at a friend's house at the lake and went for a jog and got back and was like hunched over on my knees. And I look up and he's standing there with clippers and he just says, hey, it's time. And I was like, 
okay, I guess it is. And uh, never been the same afterwards. But um, I tell you that story because as we look at these names, we can learn a lot about God. And I love Isaiah. Uh, Obviously, this was written by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah was carried by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these things. Um, And think about it. Like if you had to describe Jesus, look at what he picks. He talks about that he is a wonderful counselor, that he is full of wisdom. He talks about that he is full of power and that he's a mighty God. He talks about the father heart, um, that he is our everlasting father. Um, He talks about the prince of peace. Like if you had to describe God, you would infinite wisdom, power, you know, love and compassion from the father and peace. Um, That's a good place to start. But as we study these names, we can also, um, just like in receiving a gift, we can learn some things about ourselves, can't we? We sure can. And in Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, he talks about this. The idea um, that Jesus came to be those things for us reveals something about us, if that makes sense. The fact that Jesus came to be our wonderful counselor um, shows us that we were pretty foolish and we needed wisdom from God. The fact that he came to be our mighty God shows that we are powerless. We're dead in our sin. We're powerless. We can't save ourselves. We can't obey God's law. We can't be good enough to earn his love or his favor. Um, So Jesus came to be... Um, a mighty God in our place. The fact that he was our everlasting father and that's what Jesus came to be shows us that we were enemies, we were rebels, we were orphans, we had rebelled from God's plan and we decided to go our own way and we needed to be rescued and adopted and saved and brought into the family and redeemed. Um, The fact that he came to be our prince of peace shows that because of our sin, we were at enmity with him. We were rebels, we were at odds with him and we needed someone to come and restore peace in our place because we never could. And I've never thought about that, that the fact that Jesus came to be those things for us is amazing. And it gets more amazing when you realize the fact that we needed those things shows some deficiencies in us. That for us to, to experience Christmas, um, Christmas, as we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, it's in the devotional that we've been reading as a church. Um, it's an indictment before it becomes a delight. That for the good news to be all that it is and as great as it is, we first have to embrace the bad news. That we were foolish and we were powerless and we were enemies of God, and we were rebels, and we were dead in our sin, and we were powerless. And then God, in his grace and in his love, became for us this incredible gift. He became this, and I, I lost, he became this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all of those things. So as we look at those things, I essentially just gave you the cliff notes of, of each of the messages. Um, last week, we saw that we are foolish. Uh, we cannot, we're not wise enough to come up with this plan. You can't attain enough knowledge um, to be good enough to, to save yourself, to figure it all out, um, that we needed Jesus Christ, who is the culmination and the revelation of God's infinite, eternal, wise plan to save sinners, that he's the wisdom of God revealed. He's the word of God, which is the source of all wisdom. He's the word of God made flesh. He's the wisdom to save us. Um, Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy that these scriptures uh, make us wise for salvation. Um, he's the wisdom that saves us and he's the wisdom that will sanctify us, that he gives us all that we need in this word to be wise, to live a life of godliness and pleasing and holiness to the Lord. So we saw that last week and this week we're gonna look at the fact um, that we are powerless. So if you want the cliff notes, that's where we're going today. And we talked about it a little bit last week in the context, but uh, we mainly looked at chapter eight. And what I wanna do is uh, give you a little more of the context each week so we can see um, just how good this passage is. But as a refresher, if you remember, um, Isaiah is writing 700 years before Jesus. And this was right after the kingdom of Israel had split. 
Um, the kingdom of Israel was um, split right after Solomon, his reign ended. Solomon ruled for 40 years and his son Rehoboam entered into the kingdom. And soon after Rehoboam entered, the kingdom of Israel split and 10 tribes went to the north and they were still called Israel. Two tribes went to the south and they were called Judah. And all through First and Second Kings, the reading gets a little confusing because the author is skipping between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and um, speaking on behalf of these prophets to call both kingdoms, the northern and the southern, to repentance. Each, all throughout the book of Kings, they're calling both kingdoms to repent, to turn back to the Lord, because that is the story of the scriptures, is all of us have turned from God. Each of us has gone to our own way. Each of us has suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness. Each of us is trying to be our own God, to satisfy our own souls, to be good enough, to be righteous enough, to be holy enough. And we see these prophets calling out to Israel to turn back to God. And it gets real because this was almost um, the last warning that they would get before God would exercise his judgment on his people like he would do all throughout the Old Testament when they would turn from him. And this was no surprise. We talked about this last week. All throughout the Old Testament, God told his people, if you turn from me, if you deviate from me, if you wander from me, I will exercise my righteous and holy and good and right judgment on your sin. I will. I'll take you from your land. I will allow other nations to come in and exile you and plunder you and take your possessions. I will remove you from this place if you turn from me. As he gave them the law, he said this. We looked at Deuteronomy all throughout. Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 31, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If you keep my commands, you will have life. If you turn from me, I will punish you. Keep my commandments and live, as Proverbs says. Stay with me, remain in me. I'm I've redeemed you. I've rescued you. I loved you. Here's my law to govern you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my treasured possession. Now remain with me. Stay with me. Abide in me. And just like Israel, same promise given to us. And we always deviate. We turn from the goodness of God, from the righteousness of God, from the holiness of God. And we turn to lesser things to try to satisfy our souls. We turn to finite things to try to give us infinite satisfaction. And over and over again, it doesn't work. And as we look through Isaiah, um, I want to give you just a couple of, of things that the Israelites had turned to um, leading up to chapter 9. Um, because, as we'll see, um, you and I aren't much different. Um, that when we turn from the Lord, when we turn from his goodness, when we deviate from his ways, um, as Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. Um, we all turn to the same things. And uh, I want you to see a couple of these. And uh, solution number one for the Israelites, instead of turning to God for their redemption, for their salvation, um, they turn to their own religion. Um, if you look with me um, in chapter one, it'll be on the screen. There's a couple verses starting in verse 10. Um, look at what the Israelites had done. Um, it says this in Isaiah 1, verse 10. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Look at what he's calling them. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates, 
They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though I will make many, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then he says this in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And if you look at chapter one, you see what the Israelites had turned to. They had turned to empty religion. This was one of their solutions. This is what they decided to do when they suppressed the truth about God in their unrighteousness. They turned to just vain, empty religion doing whatever they want, going their own way. And hey, as long as we just bring the sacrifice to the temple, we're good. As long as we show up on Sunday and get spiritual credit, we're fine. As long as we do a couple things for God, he'll look after us and do a couple things for us. This religious game, I'll you know, give God an hour of my day and a couple dollars of my week, and then he'll bless my business and keep my kids safe and healthy and all of those things. They started playing the religious game And God says, no more, I'm done with it. I'm done with your empty sacrifices. I'm done with the blood of bulls and goats and all of those things. Your solemn assembly, your your vain assembly, you're just gathering to gather. You're just bringing sacrifices to bring them. Your hearts are far from me. You're not worshiping me for who I am. You're not seeking me for who I am. You are just going through the religious motions. And they had turned to their religions. And what does God say at the end in verse 16? He says, no, you need to be washed. You need to be made clean. You need someone to remove the evil from you. This is what I came to do. This is what I'm after. To fix internally what's wrong with you, but then horizontally what's wrong with the world. I came to deal with the brokenness of this world. I didn't come to give you a religious system. I didn't come to give you a couple pointers where you could act a little better this week. And they had turned to their religion. And here's the thing, so do we. So many people have this very transactional relationship with God. And as soon as something bad happens to us, we respond with, there's no way God would allow that to happen to me. Look at all that I've done for him. And it's this, I'll do some things for God and if he'll do some things for me. I'm not all that bad and God's come to give me a couple pointers and a couple blessings. And when I'm not all that bad, then he's not all that good. And we've fallen into this religious game. And the message of chapter one is, no, you're evil and you need to be made good. You need to be washed. You need to be made clean. And we'll see, not even, it doesn't even stop there. If we move over to chapter two, we're just going to pick a a couple verses in each one as we skip through. But look at their other solution in chapter two. It says for you, uh, starting in verse six, for you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So they look to their religion to try to save them, to try to satisfy them, and now they look to earthly possessions. Here's what Israel has done, and we do the very same thing. We turn to earthly things, we turn to finite things, we turn to possessions, we turn to money. If I just had a couple more dollars in the bank, then I would be content. 
If I just had a couple more percentage points on my bonus, then I would finally be satisfied. If I could just get to this income level, if I could just get to this tax bracket, if I could just get to this status, this possession, this thing, if I could just have this one thing, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. Easiest example of this at Christmas is in the lives of our children. Our children think that if they just get to that one thing, that their longings would be satisfied. And ironically, that one thing is usually broken before noon on Christmas Day, right? Or it's in the garage on the 26th. Came, went, did not satisfy. So many of us um, treat the Christmas season as a whole like that. Our houses get a little more full, they get a little more decorated, and we think this is gonna be the season where I'm, I'm finally happy, I'm finally at peace, I'm finally joyful, and we go through the motions, we have all the events, and it's stressful, and we fight with our family, and then we put everything back in the attic, and our house feels normal and boring again, and another Christmas went by, and the holiday season itself never satisfied our souls. We expect from this calendar season something that it could never promise and never give us. And here it comes. And we see Israel doing that same thing, trying to find their worth, trying to find their significance, trying to find their value, trying to satisfy their souls and save themselves with earthly possessions, with money, with objects, with horses, you name it. If I could just get more of those things, then I would finally be content and my heart would be satisfied. Does not work. We do the same thing. If you look at chapter three, in that day, starting in verse 18, The Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, of the headbands, of the crescents, of the pendants, of the bracelets, of the scarves, of the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, instead of a well-set hair, baldness, uh uh-oh, instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, In branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. I think you're starting to get the point. Israel turns to religion. They turn to possessions. Now they turn to their physical appearance to try to find worth, to try to satisfy their souls. They turn to all of these different things that the world would say is valuable and will make you finally feel like you're worth it, like you're significant, like you're important, like you're valuable. And you're starting to see a trend here. C.S. Lewis says that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. And that's the story of the Israelites. That's the story of Isaiah. That's the story of my life. That's the story of your uh, your life. All of us trying to find something other than God that will make us happy, that will save ourselves, that will save our souls, that will satisfy our hearts, And over and over and over again, it will not do it. We do the very same thing. And we do this because we misdiagnose the problem. And when we misdiagnose the problem, we will run after the wrong solution. If we get the sickness wrong, we will get the cure wrong. If we believe that we're pretty good people and we just need a couple more dollars and then we'll finally be satisfied or a couple more pointers or I just need a couple more behaviors, I need a couple more possessions, I need a couple less wrinkles, whatever it is. If we just think that if we just had a couple of this, a couple of that, and then we'd finally be satisfied, we will finally have arrived, then we miss it. And that's the human condition is we have misdiagnosed the problem. We think that we're pretty good people And we just need to to go through the motions to make God happy. 
couple of possessions and we'll feel good and satisfied. Need to improve our appearance and then we'll finally feel significant. Where does all that get us? The same place that it got Israel in Isaiah. It gets us to the same place. Look at Isaiah chapter five, starting in verse 20. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Here's what happens when we exchange the truth about God for a lie, when we go throughout the world trying to find the things of this world to satisfy our souls, trying to find finite things to satisfy these infinite longings in us, what do we end up doing? We end up calling what is evil good. And the first of which is ourselves. We end up calling ourselves good when we are evil. We end up thinking that we're good. We become wise in our own eyes. We become shrewd towards others that can't attain a few extra dollars and that can't keep up the religious game. We start looking down on other people. Hey, why can't you do this like I can? Maybe you'll figure it out one day. Maybe you'll be able to make a little more money. Maybe you'll be able to to behave a little better and you can be like me. We exchange the light for darkness. We'd rather have the creation than the creator. So what happens? How does this all get fixed? Well, personally for Isaiah, we see something fascinating happen in chapter six that kind of sends Isaiah in overdrive. I've got to tell people about this. I've got to to communicate to the nation of Israel. And what happens in chapter six is Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees his holiness. And it's ironic that when we finally see God for who he is, we start to see ourselves for who we actually are. When we see the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, it puts ourselves in the right place. We get perspective on who we actually are. And Isaiah has this vision in Isaiah 6, and he sees the Lord. It says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered his face, and two, they covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, so Isaiah sees God for who he is, and look at his response. Woe to me, for I am lost. I have a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then verse six, the one, then one of the seraphim flew to him, having, his hand in a, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And you see Isaiah in chapter six, he sees the holiness of God. He sees the sinfulness of himself, which always happens when we rightly see God for who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his majesty, his beauty, that he is so far set apart from us. He is perfect in all of his ways. We see just how sinful we are. And you see Isaiah call out, I am lost, I am sinful, I am broken, I am unclean. And he confesses to the Lord and you see him be forgiven in that moment. And Isaiah just kicks it into overdrive and he's like, I've got to tell the nation about this. 
He says, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to this nation. I have to tell them about your works. I have to tell them about your ways. I have to tell them about your holiness. And Isaiah meets the Lord and he's longing for his nation to see God for who he is so that they might see themselves for who they actually are and turn and repent. But what happens? The people don't. Chapter eight, as we looked at in detail last week, gets darker and darker and darker and Isaiah gets darkest at the end of chapter eight. The people still don't turn back to the Lord. They still don't repent of their sin. And God promises in chapter eight that because of their disobedience, because of their sin, God is holy and just and never let sin go unpunished. And he promises that the nation of Israel, specifically the Northern kingdom, will be invaded by the nation of Assyria. And that invasion will affect the Southern kingdom. Um, and the Southern kingdom gets a little more time to repent and they still don't. And years later, Babylon would come in and invade the southern kingdom, and they would be taken out. The northern kingdom, by the Assyrians, would never make their way back to Israel. The Lord would take them because of their sin, and he would put out their light, and they would not come back. The southern kingdom would come back. Why? Because way back in Genesis 3, God made humanity a promise that there would be a seed that would come from the woman, that would come from Adam and Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent. And God, the story of the Old Testament is God protecting that seed, protecting that lineage. And which tribe did Jesus come from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah was in the south. And although God would punish them because of their sin, he would also be merciful because he made a promise to humanity that he would save them. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would redeem the curse of sin. And he allows, years later, through using this young Israelite named Esther um, to plead with the Persian king to let his people return back to their home. And the southern kingdom would eventually come back to the nation of Israel. And they would rebuild the temple and it would not be as glorious as it used to be. And the people would weep and all of those things. But God's people, um, battered and bruised and punished because of their sin, would eventually make their way back because God is merciful and compassionate and made a promise to humanity that from this lineage would come the Messiah. And we see this promise as if things, right when things get as darkest as they are in the book of Isaiah, we see this promise that we just read. But there's a couple words at the end of Isaiah chapter eight, it says that the people were um, in hunger, which means that they obviously were craving food, but it also means um, just that they were physically hungry, that they were out of strength. Um, it says that they were in gloom and in anguish, meaning that they had these strongholds. They were in anguish. They couldn't overcome their sin. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't be good enough. They couldn't be righteous enough. They were spiritually out of strength and they were in bondage to their sin. They had strongholds over them. They were slaves to sin, as Paul says in Romans. And in the middle of those things, we see God promise us some hope. When things got darkest, we see in Isaiah 9, it says in verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I love this. Um, there's so some cryptic messages in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, it says, for unto us, a child is born. And we see that this child, this Jesus, 700 years later, that he would be born, that he would be human. But it also says, it says a child is born on one hand, but it also says a son is given on the other. 
And we see that this child would be unlike any other child, that he would be born into human flesh, but he would also be given. It doesn't say that he would be created. It doesn't say that he would be made. It says that he would be given. Why? Because Jesus isn't a created being. He eternally existed as God with the Father, with the Spirit, and this child would be born, but this son would be given. And we see both of those worlds collide in Luke chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit would conceive this baby in this virgin named Mary, and she would have a son, and it would be the Son of God. We see that this child would be born, that he would be fully human, and we see that this son would be given at the same time that Jesus would be fully divine. And that's what we believe, according to the scriptures, that Jesus is fully man, but he is also fully God. Not born like us born from man and woman, that he would be conceived by the spirit and born of a virgin. And we'll talk about it in a little bit, but the virgin birth is very significant to Christian belief. You want to talk about one of the essential beliefs of Christianity that we'll talk about in foundations. One of those is the virgin birth, that Jesus would not be born like us. So you see that he's fully man and he's fully God. Why? Because the the testimony of scripture is that man is separated from God because of our sin. Isaiah 59, two, your sins have um, separated you from your God. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That the overwhelming testimony of scripture is God does not dwell with sin. He can't. He is holy, he is right, he is perfect, he is majestic, and our sin has separated us from God. So what does God do? He sends someone who is fully man, but also fully God, who would be the perfect sacrifice to remove the separation between God and man. You see Jesus show up on the scene. And the overwhelming testimony of scripture is that you and I cannot save ourselves. Man is powerless to save themselves. We are powerless to obey God's law. We are powerless to sanctify ourselves. We cannot be good enough, holy enough, righteous enough because of our sinful condition. We sin by nature and we sin daily by choice. And you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we can never be good enough. We just can't. And it's the story of the scriptures. One of my favorite, and I find it funny, um, I hope you do too, is in Deuteronomy chapter five, um, there's this moment where Moses recounts the law. He gives the 10 commandments to the nation of Israel and he gives them the law and he starts speaking and the people finally stop him. And they're like, we can't hear this anymore. Like if we keep hearing the words of God, we will die. So stop what you're saying and go and tell God that we're gonna obey him. And look, I want to read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 5, um, starting in verse 27. This is the people talking back to Moses. They say, go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it. And here's what they say and we'll do it. Hey, stop talking. Just go tell God that we've heard what he said and we're going to do it. And look at verse 28. And the Lord heard your words. When you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And then verse 29, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear the Lord and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to their tents. And I love that. The people are like, we've heard the Lord. We're going to obey him. We're going to do it. And God's like, oh, if only you could, right? Oh, if only you had the heart to obey me. Go back to your tents. Moses, you stay here. I've got some more dealings with you. And that's our, that's our condition. 
We show up to church, give me a couple tips, I'll go and obey them. And we come back next week and we fake it. Because by Wednesday, we had already forgotten the three tips, much less obeyed them, right? Give me some religious to-dos. Give me the words, I'll go and do it. And God is saying, you still don't understand your problem. I didn't come to fix your behavior. I came to fix your condition. I came to rescue your soul. You're not good people that need some fixing. You're dead people that need to be made alive. You're sinners that need a savior. And the people cry out and we're gonna obey the Lord. And he's like, if only you could. If only you had the heart to obey me. We see it again in Joshua, the the verse that everyone puts on their house. Joshua leads the people all throughout the promised land. He's their leader. He's their warrior. He's their victor. And we see Joshua, not perfectly, but the people are obedient to the Lord. Um, like I said, they, they, they had some missteps along the way and they definitely didn't obey at the end when they were told to wipe out all the inhabitants of the land and not intermarry with them and not worship their gods. And they end up doing all three of those things. But by and large, by God's grace, the people of Israel make it into the promised land and you see they divide up the land. The second half of the book of Joshua, Joshua 12 through 22-ish is pretty boring reading because it's just dividing up of the land of Israel. It's, hey, this tribe, you get this land and here's kind of your portion and here's where, you know, the perimeter of your land and here's what you're gonna do with it. And now this tribe, tribe number two, you're gonna get this land and this is what you're gonna do with it. And here's the boundaries, here's the borders. And it's 10 chapters of that. And then Joshua gives his final speech after they've conquered the land. All right, we're gonna send all 12 tribes out to their places. And he gives them, he reminds them of what God has done, how he's rescued them, how he's redeemed them, how he saved them. And then he says this in verse 27, go and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and hear and do it. And then he says this, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of the people in which they've spoken to you. They are right in all that they were spoken. Oh, I I copied Deuteronomy. Let me flip to Joshua real quick. Um, I have it wrong in my notes. Um, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. It says this. He says, um, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answer, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. People say, no way, we're not gonna forsake the Lord. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and served and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, and I find this hilarious, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline the heart to your Lord. And you see the people of Israel, hey, choose who you're gonna serve, we're gonna serve the Lord. You can't do it. We're gonna serve the Lord. And he's like, then put away your foreign gods. You're already disobeying. And this is the human condition. You can try, it doesn't matter how many do-overs that you and I get in this life. 
Notice that the Christmas story isn't God resetting everything and giving humanity a second chance. It doesn't matter if you had a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, you and I would never be able to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We would never be able to completely and rightly serve him. Left to ourselves, we are powerless to save ourselves, to obey God's law, powerless to overcome temptation, powerless to satisfy our own hearts. Just like the Israelites. The Israelites weren't looking for a mighty God because they diagnosed their problem as the wrong thing. They were looking for a couple pointers, a couple of behavior fixes, a couple blessings, couple earthly circumstantial things, and we are no different. We think our problem is if I just had a little more of this and a little more of that, if I just was able to, to be a little bit better, then God would love me. That is not the gospel, church. We have a much greater problem. And because we have a much greater problem, God gave us a much greater solution. Our real problem is not that we're lacking in a couple of things, not that we're deficient in a couple of things. It's no, we have a sinful condition in our hearts and we are powerless to do something about it. And that's the beauty of the Christmas story. We're not good people that need some pointers. We're dead people that need a savior. And Christmas is about the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and all of those things. But church, Christmas is so much bigger than Luke chapter two. The Christmas story is the culmination in the arrival of all that God had been doing and promising all throughout the scriptures. That way back in Genesis chapter one and two, God created the earth, he created the world, he created everything in it and it was good. He created man and woman and it was good. He created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he promised them, he gave them a command to fill the earth, to subdue it, to keep it, to enjoy it. And he promised life if they would do it and death if they did not. And God held them to perpetual obedience to that command and man did not obey. Man sinned, man ate the apple. And because man sinned, they were fundamentally marred. The image of God in them was marred and every man after them would inherit this sin nature because of Adam and Eve. And we can blame them, but you and I would have done the same thing. And every single man for all of creation, all of human history, sin, obey, or disobey, brokenness in the world. This world is broken. This world is needing a savior. This world is lost. And we cry out for God to give us justice. But the problem is, if God gives us justice, then we die. So what does God do in order to be holy and righteous and just, but also be the justifier and to, to make people just and to be gracious and merciful? He sends his own son who would not be born like us, who would not be born according to, to human means. He would be born of a virgin. He would be divinely conceived, born of a virgin, not born under sin like you and I, but he would be born by the Holy Spirit and he would willingly put himself under the law. Why? To, so, so he could obey the law and fulfill the law and redeem those who are under the law. And actively in his obedience, he would obey every single word of God. He wouldn't throw it out. He wouldn't abolish it. He wouldn't say, We're, you know, God's changing his mind on the plan. No, he would come to earth and he would obey every single law of God perfectly and completely. 
and his active obedience. And then in his passive obedience, he wouldn't just stop there. He would obey his father and go to the cross for those who could not obey the law, those who could not save themselves. He would be completely obedient to the father, obedient to death, even death on a cross, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty. He would be born of divine means, being fully God, but he would also be born as a child, being fully man, so that he can empathize with our hearts, being fully man, but he could also satisfy our hearts, being fully divine. That he could give us the longings of our hearts, of significance, the security we long for, the satisfaction and the joy that we long for, that he could give us those things. That's why we love the Christmas story, so that anyone who might receive him by faith and call on the name of the Lord, they might be saved and be justified. They might be made righteous, that he would become sin, he who knew no sin would become sin, so that we might become sinners, might become the righteousness of God, that we might be made holy. That's the beauty of the Christmas story, is the Messiah has come. Those who were powerless have received the power of God that we might be saved. Power for salvation, power for sanctification, power to overcome sin, power to obey God's law. You and I had none of those things and Jesus Christ came to give us all of those things. That's the beauty of the Christmas story. First Corinthians talks about how death has been swallowed up in victory. It says, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? And what does it say? It says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That you and I, we deserve death. We were headed to death. Why? Because of our sin, we could never obey God's law. We just can't. So what did Jesus do? He became a man and obeyed God's law perfectly. He removed the sting of death because he obeyed the law. Now death has no sting. Death has no victory. And Jesus Christ has won the, the, the victory for us. Now you and I will never have to taste death if by faith we're united to Christ. I want to read this to you and then give us a couple application and then we'll wrap up. Um, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul talks about the, the, he talks about the wonderful counselor and mighty God in this passage. Um, and he says this, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are powerless receive power. And what's the power? It's the gospel. It's the word of the cross. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. That those who were powerless had received the power. The word of the cross is foolish, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, here's the infinite wisdom of God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That in the wisdom of God, how would sinners be saved? That sinful, broken man would preach the power of the gospel and the power of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit would bring death to life, would bring dead sinners into life, would cleanse and justify and make righteous those who are in sin. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, here it is, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us, for unto us, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, those who are powerless, those who are in sin, we've been given two power sources. The first is the gospel. It's the power to save you, but it's also the power to sanctify you. That because of the gospel, you and I can become um, more like Christ. We can be conformed to the image of his son. As we behold him, we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How are you going to overcome your temptation on a daily basis? One, you overcome it by putting your faith in Jesus initially, but two, you overcome it by believing the gospel. That when you and I are tempted, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no temptation has seized us except what's common to man and God's faithful. That he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we're tempted, he'll provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. And what he's saying here is that all of our temptation is common to man. It's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And what has God given us? He's given us the power of the gospel. That when I sin, it's not because I forgot a couple pointers that my pastor gave me last week. It's because I forgot the gospel. When I'm tempted to, to feel significant, and to be loud and disrespectful, to make myself feel important and seen and heard, it's because I forgot the gospel. It's because I forgot that in the gospel, I'm already seen and heard and valued and significant. When I am greedy and I think that another thing, another possession, another bite to eat, whatever it is, if I think another thing is gonna satisfy me, it's because I forgot the security that I have in the gospel. When you and I sin, the, the means to overcome temptation is in the power of the gospel. It's remembering and believing the gospel in every area of our lives. And man, are there areas in my life where I feel like I believe the gospel? I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. I tend to not worry about things financially because part of ministry is just signing up to not have a lot. And I've trusted God that, hey, he's gonna provide and we don't need a lot and that's okay. But man, do I not trust the gospel in other areas of my life. In preaching, in ministry, Man, do I think that I have to be good enough, I have to be well enough, I have to be compelling enough, I have to be smart enough, I have to be educated enough, and then God might use me. And it's not trusting in the gospel. The, go the power is not in me. The power is not in the preacher. The, the worst thing I can do is just try to be really compelling for you and not give you the power, the word. And boy, do I forget the gospel over and over again. And I think that my worth is determined by the success or the failure of my last sermon. There are areas in all of our lives where we forget the gospel, where we find our security in the world. We try to find our pleasure and our satisfaction in the world. And to overcome temptation, church, is one, to initially believe the gospel, but um, ongoing to preach it to ourselves. That in that moment when we're tempted to do something to feel pleasure, to do something for satisfaction, to do something to, um, to, to turn to a bottle or to a website or, or whatever it is, to try to satisfy us, to say, no, 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 no. The gospel says that in Christ, I can be satisfied. In his presence, our um, joys and pleasures forevermore. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That that's where I go to be satisfied. 
It's believing the gospel every single time that you and I are tempted. That the gospel gives us power, but also the Godhead gives us power. That we have power in the Father. We see all throughout scripture that the Father is (laughs) infinitely powerful. We see the power of God accomplished through the victory of the Son. But then the Son has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, and now what has happened? He's given us his Spirit, who gives us the power to overcome. By the Spirit, we will put to, de- put to death the deeds of the body, as Romans says. If we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Acts 1 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses for Christ. If we live by the Spirit, we'll walk by the Spirit. And as we walk by the Spirit, we'll produce the fruits of the Spirit. That Jesus Christ has given us his Spirit so that you and I can have the power to obey the Word of God. We can have the power to resist temptation. And by his power, he has saved us. And now we can walk with him, we can dwell with him, we can obey him. So the question this morning is, where do you go when you feel powerless? Where do you go? Is it to another podcast? Is it to another principle? Is it to a to-do list? This is where I feel powerless and I just need to go and produce something so I feel significant again. Where do you go when you feel powerless? to your own strength, to religious deeds? Where do you turn to? You have been given the power of God by his spirit, if you are in Christ, to obey. Paul mentions this, and we'll close with this passage. Um, He says this in 2 Corinthians 12. He's talking about all of these revelations that he's received, and because of that, God has humbled him and given him this thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what the thorn is, but he, Paul, clearly it was bothering him enough where he pleads for God to remove it. And he says this in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, there I am strong. Church, the key to having power to obey God's word, the key to having power to resist temptation and sin is not for you to buck up and to think that you can do it in your own strength. It's to admit that you can't. That's where the power is found. That's where the power is found to resist temptation. That's where the power is found to to close the website. That's where the power is found to put the bottle down. It's to admit that you're weak. It's not for us to put on this perception that we've got it all together. Paul says no, that when we are at our weakest, there we are strong because we are finally put down the pride, put down the perception put down the haughtiness of our souls and we, we fall on our knees and that's where the strength is found. Strength is not found in your human might. It's found in his might. He is our mighty God. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his power. And true strength is admitting that you're weak. It's admitting that you need him. And the strength is found when we depend on him, not when we, we, we muster up even more courage this time. This time I'm not gonna do it. This time I'm not gonna give in. Just in my own strength, I'm not gonna do it. No, it's going into a situation saying, I need the gospel more now than ever. God, I need you to be my satisfaction. I need you to be my security. I need you to be my sanctification. I need you to be my holiness. I need you to be my significance because you are. And it's admitting that you're weak. Depending on the Lord, seeking his word for help. 
allowing the light to come in on your situation. So where do you turn when you're weak? Where do you turn when you need power? Where do you need the power of God in your life right now? Is it a particular sin? Is it a particular relationship? Maybe today is the day to stop saying that I'm just going to do it better next time and saying, you know what? I need the power of God in my marriage. We need to stop acting like we can do this on our own. We need to stop acting like we've got it all together. We need to stop acting like that we're just going to be smart enough to raise teenagers. Maybe today's the day that you get on your knees and say, God, I am powerless. And the farther you fall on your knees, the harder you lean on Christ, the more power you'll have by his spirit to depend on his word, to walk with him. When you are weak, then you are strong. He has given us his spirit. He has saved us by his spirit. It's a spirit that's caused us to be born again. And he's put his spirit in us to give us the power to obey him, to walk with him, to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to love one another, to resist temptation. Church, the Christmas story is we who are powerless have been given the power of God. Jesus Christ has become for us power. He is our mighty God. So where do you turn? Where are you turning? Maybe this morning you need to repent of God. Here's where I've been turning when I'm powerless. Here's where I go. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel the stress. So I turn to this thing to numb the pain. Or I turn to this thing to try to get enough earthly wisdom or productivity instead of hitting my knees and depending on you to, in your grace to be sufficient to get me through each day. Where do we turn? I'm trusting and praying that the Holy Spirit um, would move and lead you and reveal to you some of those things as he has done for me. But church, the power of God has come to save us, to redeem us, to sanctify us and to, to embolden us and empower us to live a life holy unto the Lord. That's why we love the Christmas story, because this son has come. He's fully man to empathize with you in every way, and he's fully God to satisfy you in every way. So seek him, run to him, let him be your strength. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you looked down on a people who were powerless. We were slaves to sin. There was nothing we could do to ever get to you. Not a thing. We cannot defeat our own sin. We cannot overcome it in our own strength. And God, you took on our likeness. You took on our humanity. And not only that, you took on our sin. Not that you sinned. You were perfect and you were innocent, but you went to the cross in our place. And you who knew no sin, you became sin. So by your power, we might become the righteousness of God. So Father, as we think about what you've done at the first Christmas, we rejoice and we worship you for it. God, we look forward to what you will do by your power when you come again. God, that although sin has been defeated, the penalty of sin has been removed, the power of sin is being overcome by your spirit working in us, God, you still will come back and by your power, you will remove the very presence of sin. And God, we long for that day. But until then, help us to live by your power and live by your spirit to overcome the sin in our lives. Thank you that you began the work and you promised us in your word that you will be the one to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. It's all by your power. And because of that, it's all for your glory. 
God, help us to boast in your strength, not our own. Thank you that you give us the grace to get through it each day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.